1: just before 7.30 p.m. on February 9th, 2004, when Maura Murray was last seen. Her car was found damaged,
2: locked, and abandoned on Route 112 just outside of the White Mountains of New Hampshire.
1: Her disappearance has haunted and frustrated family, friends, and a community of people searching for the truth.
2: Since that night, there has never been a credible sighting.
1: You're listening to the Missing Moramari podcast. Welcome back to the Missing Moramari podcast. Lance, uh, we've got a two-parter coming up um, with our buddy John Smith.
2: Yeah, some really good stuff that he said. Uh, he's been in contact with the family, uh, as have we, and um, we're we're gonna start really getting into the uh, the real minute details of um, the accident scene and uh, the night of uh, Moore's disappearance. And it's uh, some pretty interesting, eye opening stuff that people are gonna hear in uh, in the next couple of minutes.
1: Yeah, definitely some stuff that's gonna make you question all that you've learned before, and uh, a lot of stuff that we've talked about on this podcast already. Exactly. And if this is
2: the first podcast that you're listening to from this series, this is really a good place to start, Um, starting right at the accident scene and not getting too into um, all the other things that go along with the um, looking into her past and uh, trying to piece things together that may not be there. This is a good starting
1: point. I do agree. And I, I would suggest you still go back and listen to them all because it's about the journey. In a lot of ways, but um, but I think we are we are at a good point right now where uh, we're bringing some information that was not talked about in the previous eighteen episodes. We're going to roll the, the interview in just a couple minutes, but uh, first just wanted to thank everybody for the amazing emails and tweets uh, from our last episode, Crossing the Rubicon with Cold and Whole Field. You guys seem to really respond positively to that episode, so that makes us very excited. I really don't think we got one single negative comment.
2: Yeah, I mean, if we did get something that was a criticism, it was kind of sandwiched in between um, people understanding the reason why we had cold on and uh, where we were coming from with that. As he's identifying a new group of people that are interested and uh, trying to be productive with this case. And I just want to reiterate that... When we started doing this, it was done on a weekly basis because there was a lot of information out there and it was kind of like the, uh, the the blind man and the elephant. You know, the blind man puts his hand on the elephant and doesn't realize how big it is because he can't see it. And once we got through all of that information and we started really focusing on the night of the accident, focusing on the family and um, what happened in, in that, uh, you know, two hour, hour down to the minutes um, that the accident happened, anything beyond that starts to become a little bit irrelevant if you want to be productive with this. And if we were to start forcing episodes out on a weekly basis, then we would probably do more harm than good. We would probably end up convoluting the case. It's already been convoluted enough, and our, our purpose is to start making things as clear as possible.
1: And before we roll the interview, just wanted to say follow us on Twitter at Mora Murray Doc. follow us. We're also on Facebook, on Instagram, and follow our guest John Smith on Twitter. His handle is in the show notes. And for information on the case from the family, please follow at Mora Missing on Twitter. And when you follow them, just please be respectful about it. Also, a really great article was written about this podcast and uh, true crime podcasts in general. And in fact, it also included our buddies at the Generation Y podcast. Uh, So that's a really great article from Vice and David Whelan. Uh, So check that out. The link there is in the show notes as well.
2: Hey John, how's it going?
3: It's going great. Uh, it's been a pretty warm week up here this, uh, this week and we've been enjoying that. No snow yet and I'm loving it.
2: So yeah, that's surprising up in the uh, mountain region. No snow. Almost Christmas.
3: Yeah, usually uh, around Thanksgiving or so we start getting slammed. Um, usually every Thanksgiving it snows and creates travel havoc for sure. But uh, this year, So far, we're pretty lucky, and I'll take it as long as we can.
1: So, John, we wanted to have you back on the air to talk about some interesting developments, information you've been looking into, and some recent events. Let me first start by asking, what was the purpose of Fred Murray's trip to New Hampshire to meet you last weekend?
3: Yeah, well, uh, on Saturday the 12th, I met with him in Littleton, New Hampshire. Uh, He drove up that morning. We met for uh we met around he picked me up around one o'clock at my house and uh, we ended up at another person's house in littleton uh that we wanted to speak with and uh so we ended up uh together for about one o'clock until five thirty in the afternoon it was a very great day uh hadn't seen fred in quite a while. And this would be the first time that, uh, he would be meeting, uh, my psychic friend up here, uh, who, you know, I, of course I won't mention his, his first name. I I call him Greg just to keep him in the dark. Uh, but anyway, uh, that was the basic mission was for Fred to come up here to meet this psychic and see if there was any information we could pull to help solve this case. Now, just to give you a little background on Fred Murray and psychics, um, you know, he's pretty much like, you know, could just toss him off to the side when we first started this whole thing, the family and, and myself dealt with them quite a bit. Uh, I've dealt with about six different psychics over the years now. There is some speculation, or I'm, I'm sorry, there is some talk out there right now about how your podcast and and the people, some of the people you've had on, has been disrespecting the Murray family uh, by the way that we've been doing what we're doing. Uh, just some of the podcasts aren't supposedly up to the viewers' snuff compared, to and they think that we're we're not being respectful to the family. Now, I just talked to Terry on Saturday and about all this. And in speaking to him, I found out that, you know, as long as we are doing this in a positive light, he has no problem with what's happening. And as far as the psychics go, which people were really getting on to us because you had a psychic on your show and they, you know, started putting you down for that. All right. And that was disrespecting Fred as well because we brought a psychic in. Okay. Fred Murray is, has no problem with using psychics if it will help to find his daughter. So anyone out there that wants to dispute that, they can't anymore. This is direct from Fred Murray just a few days ago, and he will accept and take any information that will help him find his daughter. To continue, the, the the meeting went very well. I, I really can't say a lot about what we discussed as far as psychic-wise because there was some information brought out that, that validated that the psychic person um, was real, um, stuff that only Fred Murray would know uh, personally about him, his family, deceased family members. And, you know, you could see Fred you know, going, wow, this is, this is really intense. And, you know, so I can't really go a lot into what we discussed, but after the, after we get done doing the reading, uh, which he was very impressed with, we discussed the case quite a bit. Um, And we didn't discuss it too intensely in front of the psychic, because I don't want to taint their, any of their information. And in fact, my psychic friend, Greg, got up and left the, uh, the room and went away for a little while. So his wife could discuss it with us and everything. And she, you know, she tries to, he hasn't seen videos or anything. He doesn't pay any attention to any of the stuff that's online because he doesn't want to, um, you know, put any information into, into his brain. that doesn't need to be there. Uh, he wants to be fresh. So, uh, You know, we, like I said, we discussed uh, quite a bit of the case. We discussed quite a few of the players uh, and we discussed another psychic that he's been dealing with. And this other psychic that he's just been dealing with recently has come up with some information that is very close to what this other psychic has come up with. So now we've got two to three psychics that are all coming up with basically the same information and we're trying to piece all that together right now. And, you know, of course it is like a needle in a haystack, as anyone would say, and especially with psychic information, because interpretation is so tough. But we're in this mission to solve the case. And like I said, we'll take any information we can get from any uh, source and and filter it and use it in whatever way we can.
2: Very good. How does that happen? How does um, meeting... Um... Fred happen? Did he call you? Did you call him? What have you been talking to him through? Uh, Helena Dwyer Murray, or I just... and you'd said it had been a while. So how long has it been since you last uh, had had interacted with him?
3: I got you. Um, well, Fred and I—I've known Fred since. Um, let me see. It would have been March of two thousand and four. So I've been working with Fred and Han family since. March of that year. Um, I offered my services earlier than that, but that was when the New Hampshire State Police came in and told me that I was interfering with an investigation and told me to back off. And so it was about a month later, I believe, uh, March, probably around March 20th or something like that, that I um, offered my services again to Fred. And that was when we got you know that so I've been friends with I've been friends with Fred now for for that long friends and the family.
1: I think people would be surprised to know um, that you guys are both into psychics.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I I you know because like I you know I I never was up until twelve years ago when I first started working with them and I mean I'd had a couple psychic readings before that but it just never was by anybody that I thought was very good or professional. It just didn't really validate anything for me but. Uh, you know, like I said, it, it, Fred in the beginning wasn't as receptive to it, but now he's, you know, he is. And it, I have to say, it was strange sitting at the table with him, you know, and knowing his skepticism, you know, it, you kind of, you know, I was kind of looking for trademark signs on his face. of Like, what the fuck am I doing here? Mm-hmm. You know, but. No, that's not what happened and and like i said it was it was great it was uh he he ended up uh loving the people um and you know he ended up giving them his telephone number, which does not happen uh, Fred is very very protective of that because of everything that's been going on so you know there was a positive connection there, definitely a positive connection so
2: now he was on uh he did the unsolved uh clip which was about 5 minutes long. Um, we watched it it was really good. Uh it was really uh, interesting to see um I don't know it kind of struck me. It was, it was it was it was uh very raw and powerful to me. Um so that that came out when? That was uh that when when did that come out? Thursday?
1: They came out on the 11th. Friday? I believe. Yeah, it was Friday, I think.
2: So it came out on Friday. And then he went up to New Hampshire on Saturday. Was that was that a timing thing for him? Did he know that he was? Did he know? Hey, they're gonna release this on third on Friday, so I'm gonna head up to New Hampshire maybe to shake something loose. Maybe you know, maybe so people knew that his face was gonna be up there. See who acted differently or something.
3: Right. Um, I, I don't know if it was deliberate or not. I, I will tell you that the interview was done a couple weeks ago um, for the unsolved.com dot com interview or. And he, he did about an hour and 10 minute interview and he is, you know, he he's happy with what was put out, but it was edited. It it, it was raw. It was very powerful to me, but he would have been happy if you could see the whole thing. And so our mission is to, he's trying to acquire that whole interview at this point in time, whether it be to, I don't know if he'd be able to put it out because it is the property of unsolved.com, but if he can at least get it, then, then that way we can take and at least view it and see the whole thing and have a better idea of what was actually said.
2: Well, if he wants, we can have him on the show and we can ask him the same questions.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Good try guys. Yeah. Um, You know, I I praised you guys as I have been for quite a while now. And, you know, when I told him about the FBI thing and, and what we're going to try and do with that, he was impressed. He was as impressed as hell because he has been wanting this since day one. And, you know, when all this went to hell, that's what he, he's wanted. And he's been asking for 12 years. And the fact that that's what our main mission is, is to get the FBI involved, he is totally on board with us. As far as getting him to come on and do an interview with you, I don't know if I can talk him into that. Um, Because, you know, it's just one of those things he might, he might not. But I'm thinking that I could probably talk him into it.
2: Was your time with Fred uh, specific to just the psychics or did you do any uh, other investigation? Did you go to the accident site?
3: We did not. um, The the whole time was basically spent with the psychics, um, other than the ride to their house that I was with Fred and then the ride back to my house. And we sat in my driveway and talked for, I don't know, about 20 minutes or so about the case. Uh, you know, talked about how we thought things were going, of course, pretty, you know, good on this aspect, but slow on, on any real information coming in, of course, uh, But, you know, again, the biggest thing I think you all have to realize is that this is a man who is determined to find his daughter. He will never quit, and he, you know, like I said, he misses his buddy. He he wants his buddy back. And whether it be, you know, one way or another, and that's what he said, he knows at this point in time, it's the other. But he said, I just need to know, he says, I, I can't die not knowing what happened. He says, because I just feel like I've let her down.
2: That's interesting, because the Boston Magazine article, I think had him quoted as saying, he was ready to go to the to to his grave, not knowing what happened. Did did something happen in the meantime? And, I mean, of course, he wants. I don't know if he was. I'm, I'm. i guess I'm asking if he was. If you think he was misquoted in the Boston Magazine article, because it really made it seem like he was. He was kind of resolved to the fact that um, he would never find out the truth.
3: No, I believe that he was misquoted in that. I, I believe it's what I just said. He will go to his grave looking for his daughter.
2: Yeah. Okay. Okay. It could. It could have been an interpretation thing too. I could have misinterpreted the way it was. Uh, w- the way it was worded. Um, is he pretty much like done with law enforcement? I can't imagine the frustration he must have. Is he? Has he pretty much written off local law enforcement?
3: Yes. Yeah. Local to him, local law enforcement. As far as. Uh, town of Hayroll New Hampshire, and New Hampshire State Police, he has pretty much written off, uh, you know, the cold, the New Hampshire cold case unit is where is where the case lies now, and they're part of the New Hampshire State Police. You know, they're, and we're not saying that they're not doing anything. You know, we, we are not saying that, but there's things that are known, not only by us, but by them that should throw up red flags and should create this this investigation to move in a more positive direction. But for some reason, it's not. There's something holding it back. Now, what Fred Murray believes this is, is he believes that there is some type of cover-up. So I'm not the conspiracy theorist that everyone thinks that I am, I am somewhat, (laughs) but Fred is on the same page as I am. And I have not directed him in any way to think this way. He has thought this since the beginning himself. He's a very smart man, very knowledgeable. And he knows that from night one, From minute one, that something was not right, things weren't done right, and he wants an investigation that will prove these facts. That is his mission at this point in time. And he knows that the only way that that can be done is by, like he said from the beginning, we need the FBI.
2: I'd like to talk about some of those inconsistencies or the things that were not done correctly the night of the accident. Um, I mean, we've learned things over the past couple of weeks that either suggest complete ineptness on law enforcement's part or a conspiracy. And you, you said the word conspiracy theory, and everyone puts those two words together. But when you look at what happened that night, it's not a theory. You know, it's either a conspiracy or its um complete ineptness.
1: I think the conspiracy too I would just like to add, you know, isn't necessarily uh what we're saying isn't necessarily oh well the cops killed Mora and they're covering up after one another. No, I I suppose it could be that, but I don't believe so. What I think is more likely is that they're covering up for a botched investigation or maybe just the fact that they know that they cannot bring proper charges to this person. And so they're sort of concealing all the evidence that they have.
3: Okay. Uh, Yeah. I would have to say that. And I, and I want to change my identity into a conspiracy analyst. There you go. I had that name a long time ago and I, I just messed up when I said theorist uh, because I'm a conspiracy analyst and I have looked at this case for 12 years, and you know, being an ex-police officer, it gives you a little bit more insight into what I need, what you need to look for, and the inaccuracies and inconsistencies of this whole case started on night one. Um, you know, basically from. What I'm going to say is the time that Officer Smith arrived and Mora was gone. Now, there is time before that that needs to be discussed, but, you know, that kind of comes after because you didn't start analyzing that until, after, until much later down the road. But the fact that Officer Smith arrived at the scene and Mora was gone or the driver was gone because, like I say, we cannot be 100% sure proved positive that it was Maura Murray at the Saturn on February 9th, 2004. And because of a statement that Butch Atwoods said to police officers when shown a picture of Maura, yeah, that kind of looks like her. To which a few days later, when shown the picture again, he said, yeah, that's her. So I'm not saying it wasn't Maura at the car, what I'm not saying 100% that it was because no one knows that for sure. No one knows that for sure. And then we have the accident report that states that the Saturn came around the corner, spun out, hit a stand of three trees, and then was jettisoned back out into the road and ended up parallel to the road, headed westbound in the eastbound lane. After being looked at by two accident reconstructionists, It has been proved that the Saturn did not hit any trees. It is not possible. It is not possible for that to have happened. The object that the car hit was a stationary object or a solid object at exactly the height, just above the headlight, that pushed the hood back in and did that damage. So this is our inconsistency. This is our first big inconsistency or inaccuracy. I'm sorry, inaccuracy is what that one is. Because now we know that the car didn't hit a tree. So then we have a rag being found in the tailpipe of the Saturn. And the rag was first spotted by Dick Guy, the EMT. He's the first one to have noticed this. Now, EMTs were only on scene for six minutes, which is a very odd thing to say the least. uh, Something that has troubled me for quite a while is this other thing, is that uh, Officer Smith, payroll police, was toned out at 746. My issue is that when Smith was toned out, he was the only one toned out to the scene. Now, you have an accident that has possible injury, because the person calling in does not know if the person is actually injured. You have An accident that's on a dangerous blind corner at 7 o'clock at night in the middle of February. So it's darkness. So they have no clue as to whether there is any fluid leakage or whatever. So it wasn't until 13 minutes later that fire department and EMS were toned out. So it makes no sense. Why, that would, why they would do that, because why would they not at least tone out the ambulance? Because you know you have a person there with unknown PI, mm-hmm. unknown personal injury. At least police and EMT should have been called out at the same time. And why they weren't is a, is a big problem to me. Fire department, I can see being called out a few minutes later once the cop gets there and says, yeah, we have fluid spilt, we need here, you know, or whatever we need to, for traffic patrol, you know, anything that could help. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's another thing that, that has always been a big, a big problem with me. Also, Officer Smith, when he found out that the rag was in the tailpipe, after he had I believe that was after he had talked to Butch Atwood, went to the Westman's house, which is Faith Westman, the 911 caller, to ask her if they knew where the girl from the accident had gone. And in stating that, they also said to the Westmans, there was a rag stuffed in her tailpipe. Now, I don't know why you would ever say that why you would feel the need to tell the Westmans anything about what's happened, you know, I mean, and especially that, that's like a, you know, oh yeah, the car spun out. That's one thing. But to say something is odd, the first oddity is the rag being in the tailpipe. The second oddity is them telling Cecil Smith, telling the Westmans that it was in there. It's like to me, he was planting the rag seed, is what I'm going to call it. He wanted someone to know about that rag in the tailpipe right now, right now.
2: Cecil Smith, telling the Westmans that there was a rag in the tailpipe, where did you get that information from?
3: That information came from the Westmans when I interviewed them in 2005. I interviewed them two times. Uh, once was in 2005. late 2004 and one was in the spring of 2005 and both times they pretty much told the same story their story has never really changed other than the cigarette thing that's the only thing that has really ever been inconsistent with their stories but they told me that he came to the door, asked where the girl was, and said there's a there's a rag stuffed in her tailpipe. And it just blew me away that, that they would say that to her. There's no reason to give, um, you know, these people who live on the corner, there's no reason to give them that information. So, yeah, in my mind, I, I think they were definitely, they wanted people to know that that happened.
2: And to clarify Cecil Smith was the chief of police at the time, and he was the first person at the accident scene. Can you talk a little bit about the conflicting um, um, reports from the eyewitness or eyewitnesses about the uh, police SUV that was at the accident scene at the time?
3: Yes. And just to correct you, uh, at the time, uh, it was Jeff Williams. And Cecil Smith would have been the next officer in line. He would have been the corporal, I think, corporal, whatever that is. Uh, so what what happened is we have witness statements. Which it's I've done a couple of timelines on, on my blog that, that really go into the whole time just with the police and the, the um, 911 caller witness statements. And then I made up another one. Of the the passerby uh, witness statements, so between those two, I, I've come. This is what I've come up with, and I, I just want to say first off that both of the witnesses uh, are professional people, um, older. Oh, they're, they're not. I don't think they're devious in any way. They wouldn't be lying to us. Uh, I don't know why they would tell us anything different than you know the truth when asked so i just want to clarify that first so we have our first witness which i have to call witness a because uh she does want to remain anonymous but she works uh in woodsville she was working on the night she works at a a professional building in woodsville at the uh uh just about down in the center of town so not you know Pretty much in the center of town. So what happened was she left work at about approximately 7.10 to 7.15 that night. And she had left early because she was supposed to have an appointment and the person who had the appointment didn't keep their appointment. So she waited the 15 minutes, didn't hear from him, and just decided she was out of there. So she left. She took... From Woodsville, she took Swiftwater Road, which is by Cottage Hospital off of Route 10. She took that and was driving on that road. The road, the speed limit's about 35 or so. And she was passed by uh, a black and white SUV, blue lights on, with the number 001 on the side. She was passed by that vehicle going the same direction as she was, which would have been uh, basically east toward Route 112. She passed by that and then she continued on her way. And when she got to Route 112, she took a, a right onto Route 112 and went east towards the accident scene. Just after she turned the corner, On to 112. She was passed again by the same black and white SUV, number 001, headed east on 112 towards the accident scene. Now, what when she got to the weathered barn corner and she came around the corner, she stated that the number 001 SUV was parked nose-to-nose with the Saturn. And she didn't see anyone around the vehicle. She just saw the blue lights... On the vehicle and noticed the black was in front of it. She continued on her way, flashing her lights to any cars that were coming the other way to warn them. And then, about uh, seven or eight miles down the road at Beaver uh, Beaver Brook uh, Beaver Pond, I'm sorry, she calls her husband as she always does um, in Lincoln and let him know that she was on her way home. That's their standard procedure. So, you know, she had all of her times down perfect because she went back through her cell phone records and looked at what time she had called and she would know how long it would take her. So she knows that she was at the weather corner before faith had even called nine one one right around. It would have been just before she called or right, at the time she was calling
2: them, I'm confused. Then, so if she sees a police officer, an SUV parked nose to nose with the lights on, right before or around the time that Faith Westman calls 911, why would why would Faith even call? Why wouldn't why? You see what I'm saying? Faith Faith should be saying on the phone. She's there's an officer at the scene, or there's already there's already police at the scene.
3: Right, so like I'm saying, I think that there could be a couple minutes difference in that, so maybe it was slightly after Faith was on the phone with nine one one because that timeline is so fine right there. Because you know, I mean, you got to figure out what it took for her to get you know from when she left work to where she was going, but we know that it didn't take her we know that it didn't take her until 7:46 when the actual cruiser showed up and and I mean I say actual cruiser because this is where it gets the sticky wicket comes in because there is no buddy Butch Atwood or the Westmans Tim or Faith who has stated when asked what cruiser Came to the scene. They have all said the sedan, number zero zero two, not an SUV. They were they and I. They were adamant that it was not an SUV. That is one thing that has always made me wonder too. It's like, oh, you know, I'm just asking. It was a car. They go, oh yeah, it wasn't an SUV. So to me, that kind of portrayed some type of, you know standoffish thing of no, 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 there was not an SUV here. No, never. So we have the witness who states that she saw this SUV pass her and it would have been before the time of the accident. So that's the big that's the big issue. It would have been before the time of Faith calling at seven twenty seven that the cruiser cruiser was passing her on this Swiftwater Road. And if there's no call on the police log, where was this, Where was the police officer going? Who was this police officer?
2: When you say the, the cruiser, the, you're talking about the SUV, right? The SUV 001. Yes. And you say, when you say passer, is, do you mean like he's passing her or he, he's going the other direction passing her? Did he like overtake her car?
3: He overtakes her car. He passed okay. her going toward, in the same direction she's going. Towards the, um,
2: she's going east, right?
3: Yes. Yep. Okay. And when she arrives at the scene, she swears. She. She. I mean, she. You know. Like I say, I have no reason not to believe her. But she says, "I saw number zero zero one parked nose to nose at the scene."
1: And this is uh, this is someone that you spoke to. This is a friend of yours, or uh, also how many. SUVs, if you know, are on, are in that force?
3: I did. I have never talked to, um, to witness a personally she's been spoken to by the family, uh, and three different times. The family spoke to her all three different times. They, she said the same exact to three different members of the family. Uh, so again, I have no reason to disbelieve what she's saying. Uh, to answer your other question, there is only one SUV on the Hamilton Police Department, and that is always used by—well, I'm not going to say always, but normally that would be the chief's vehicle. Zero zero one would be his. Zero zero two would have been uh, mm-hmm. Officer Smith's vehicle. The you know the the number two person in line, and that's that's pretty much how it went byron charles was h3 he is he's now the chief of the town the other two have, have gone now have both left
2: i want to clear up um something that i i'm getting confused on so cecil smith was not the chief of police it was this other guy williams right and williams is the guy who should have been driving 001 the suv correct But Cecil Smith is reported as being the first police officer at the scene. Correct. And this witness is saying that 001, the SUV, was actually at the scene before Cecil Smith, right? That was the only police car at the scene. Right. According to to that, according to Witness A.
3: Yeah, according to Witness A.
2: This is even further confusing the entire because what I really want to do is focus a lot on the accident scene and and the, the minutes and hours that are on either side of it and it's this like seemingly magical moment in time and it's it's becoming more uh, convoluted with I mean Faith Westman definitely would have said there's a police there's a police car there with the lights on if she if she decided to call the police anyway if there was a car there so. It had to been her phone call, the chief of police at the time, then the witness goes by, and then Cecil Smith shows up. Right. But Cecil Smith never says anywhere that the chief of police is already there, right?
3: No. No. Because in my mind, I don't think they want anyone to know that the chief was even out on the roads that night. And... My thought Why? on that is in what I know about the chief and what we've been told about him is that he used to ride around in his cruiser drinking. So, you know, I, I can't, I'm not saying one way or another that I can guarantee that he was driving the SUV that night, but normally he would be. Now The other thing that we have to remember, too, is now once Butch Atwood came along and he spoke with the driver, once he pulled away, Faith Westman still sees a person by the car.
2: Right, the flurry of activity at the trunk.
3: Right. But Faith Westman never sees this person disappear in this very short period of time that you were just telling me about. Right? Right that you just mentioned, in this very short period of time, conveniently, conveniently, Faith Westman is not watching the scene to see how what happened. Now, if she walked away towards Butch Atwood's, Butch Atwood would have seen her. If she walked the other way towards the west, police or fire department or EMS would have seen her. If she got into a vehicle at the scene... Faith should have seen that happen. Faith does not know where she went.
1: Let's talk about this timeline from the beginning of where it starts. And by the way, it's on your new blog. Um, It's called diggingforpieces.wordpress.com. The timeline here starts at 7.05 p.m. And two people hear a scanner call. There's a car in a ditch on Swiftwater Road. Driver left in private vehicle which is the way it's worded, um, law enforcement, fire, and EMS, called back to the station. So I mean, maybe we can just take this chronologically and break down exactly how, how this happened.
3: Okay, so basically I guess the easiest way to, to define this is that we have at least two witnesses that have come forward that heard the scanner call this that night, and it was at approximately 7.05. Within a few minutes, one way or another, not 22 minutes. Um, and because of those two phone calls, they heard what you just stated that there was a car that had slid off the road in the ditch, per, a driver left in the private vehicle. And it was on Swiftwater Road. Okay. Now, the accident where the Saturn was found is actually called Wild Road or Route 112. Okay. So, we have that, we have those two witnesses, scanner witnesses. Then we have witness A, who is on Swiftwater Road before the 727 timeline of Faith Calling in an accident. Okay? She is passed by the number 001 SUV with blue lights on. So, there is no call that is on our, on our Graphic County Sheriff's Department records, but we know that it was heard by two people who were listening to their scanners, and we know that because of witness A, her testimony that says that when she was passed by that vehicle, it was number 001. It was before the 727 timeline. So where was number 001 headed with its blue lights on? Where did it go, and why did, at 746, did number 002, the, the sedan, show up on the scene? So, see, this is our, this is the whole issue and the problem right here, is because you have that timeline before a 911 call even came in. And there is nothing on the log that would indicate that this cop should be going anywhere with its blue lights on, especially. And then Miss A comes along the scene, and I can't tell you exactly what time it was, but the SUV was nose to nose with the vehicle. She states that emphatically. She, she, you know. In fact, I remember one of the family saying to her, are you sure it was an SUV? And she was like, I know what the fucking SUV looks like, you know? So, and it had the 001 right on the back back end of it. So, I don't know what to tell you guys. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't there. I can say that. I was not there. I, I don't know. I'm only going by what say has told us, has been consistent about. Over the three or four times that she's been talked to. So in my mind, I have to believe that that's what happened.
1: Just to clarify, this uh, pass by. So at about 7.20, witness A is passed by the 001 SUV cruiser heading east towards one twelve. The blue lights were on, but no siren was on. And then witness A loses sight. About three minutes later, Witness A is on Route 112 at this point, heading east, and is passed again by the same SUV, 001, also going east towards Weathered Barn Corner. And then Witness A loses sight of car 001. And then Witness A passes the accident scene, At the Weather Barn, near the Weather Barn, and sees car 001, this police SUV, parked nose-to-nose with a dark car, but does not notice any people by the vehicle. Witness A proceeds east and calls home from Beaver Pond, as she always does, as you stated. And then... It says here on this timeline, one minute later is when Faith calls nine one one after hearing a thud and an acceleration. So, is it possible that that this car that this SUV took off before Faith ever saw it?
3: Well, that's going to be that would be my have to be my guess without without saying that the Westmans are lying, um, and I'm not saying that they are, but if that vehicle pulled up and they were looking out their window and get in, and, and wouldn't, they wouldn't yeah, you wouldn't think she would call 911 if she already saw blue lights there. That's exactly correct. But if maybe she had called 911 just before, like I say, I think I adjusted that thing to put that those, those uh, times were within a minute or two, one way or another, because that's how close this is. But because you know, I'm going by this witness statement who says she, she left work about 7, 10, and 15, but she knows it wasn't any later than that because her appointment at 7 didn't show up. So, you know, I'm going by that and giving her, you know, a couple of minutes one way or another to decide that. So that could make sense that that faith was already on the phone when police showed up, when this other SUV showed up. And was only there very shortly and left the scene is all that I can think of
2: and we are sure that this this witness a is a is a reliable credible witness right because because faith westman is documented as calling at 727 correct and butch atwood is documented or his uh, common law wife is documented at calling uh at 743 so according to the documents up until seven forty-three, no one has reported that there was a police car there. I mean, Butch was right there at the scene, so is it possible that she's like twenty minutes off in her in her time frame, or she would have to be a half an hour off in her time frame?
3: Right, unless, in, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess, and then that would mean that she that that the SUV pulled up right after Butch Atwood left in his bus. And she drove by, which would put her at about 7.35.
2: But then Butch backs his bus in and has a good view to the accident site and probably isn't going to get out to tell his wife to call 911 uh, or call the police. Because how long could it possibly take to back the bus in? By the time he does that, the the Faith calls, the, the SUV shows up, he he would probably go in and tell his wife i mean maybe not even anything at that point right cuz the there's somebody with the girl
3: yeah i mean that's true i mean i like i say i'm going by witness you know what they're stating you know and i i know it doesn't completely fit but it makes me i mean i don't know unless she was off by that much then that only leaves us the only time that he could have been there. Was from the time that Butch went inside, because he didn't know that Faith Westman had called. Right. Butch would have no indication that Faith called. So, if he went inside and her call went in at seven forty-three, and Smith shows up at seven forty-six, there's only then there's only just a few minutes for that to have taken place. If it happened in the 740 mark, let's say, you see what I'm saying? Right after Butch drove away before he called 911, even if he was inside, because we've never been stated that before, whether, you know, when Butch came back out to his bus that cops were there.
2: Right. Also, do you happen to know uh, if Butch's bus was not the not just the inside, but the outside of the bus? Do you happen to know if that was searched, if that was inspected for any damage? Um, and also, um, has there been any talk about
3: the police SUV
2: with damage on it?
3: The only thing I can tell you about that is, uh, is I know that Butch was questioned and given two lie detector tests. So I would imagine that maybe... They did you know do some looking at the bus. I would hope that they would have if they gave him two live detector tests. they must have had some indication that they needed to do that,
2: yeah, I mean you would you you would need some indication. I mean he's the last person who saw her alive. um he's the last person who actually spoke to her. The information that we get about um her state of being and the state of the car only came from him. he's it's surprising to me that me personally I've overlooked the Butch Atwood thing so much because of um honestly because of what I've read on blogs that, you know, forget about forget about Butch Atwood. But when you think about it, my God, he's the he's the one that's giving all the information. He shows up in a bus. It just I, I don't know. I don't wanna I don't wanna say the S word. But <laughs> you see what I'm you see what I'm saying. Like this is this is about this could be about as clear cut as 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 possible. The guy the guy failed a lie detector test.
1: What's the S word? Right.
2: Speculation.
1: Oh.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but you know like he's the last person to see her. He says that it at first he says it wasn't her, then he says it was her. So he's providing that information. He's got a bus. What what if, she, what if he did offer her help, and she said yes, and she got on that bus, and that's the last place that she went?
3: I've thought about that. Of course, once the bus pulls away, Faith Westman says that he's she's still there.
2: Faith Westman said that Faith Westman was still on the phone with the police when the bus showed up?
3: When the bus pulled away to go to his house, Faith Westman states that the driver was still at her. She could still see the driver.
2: So that would mean that Faith Westman was on the phone from seven twenty-seven until seven forty, right-ish?
3: At least, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe they hung up with her just about the time that they got the call from Atwood. You know, said we've got somebody else on the phone that actually spoke with her. You know, so maybe that's you know they hung up just about seven forty-three with Faith Westman.
2: So why would people turn away from an accident scene right there? And I, and I have an answer in my head.
3: What do you mean turn away? You mean not look after you hung up?
2: We keep, we keep talking about how there was this one moment in time where everybody didn't see, you know, everybody turned away and they didn't see what happened. And then she disappeared. What, why, if you're looking at an accident scene and you're on the phone and, and you, you look away or you hang up your phone, why would you do that? And this is an actual real question.
3: Well, my thought is that Butch came around the corner, hit the bus, she was on the bus, and Faith never saw her again after that. Is that what you wanted to hear? Because that's what I thought for a while too, but...
2: No, I mean, that's good, but I would hang up, I would look away because the cop showed up, because she has help. Then I would feel relieved enough to turn away and say, oh, okay, my call went through, the cop showed up. So that means that she's. So that means she saw nobody take Mora or Mora run away up until the cops showed up. And again, I don't want to pull out the S word, but this is where we're concluding. This is where we're coming to, if we're gonna break down like minute by minute the
1: timeline. But this isn't really the S word, right? This isn't really speculation. These are witness testimonies that were given to the Murray family, who have given it to John Smith. Why would? that not be true and and those are things that the police talked with the murray family about i imagine that's that's the murray family might have gotten it from the police you know what you're you're so right at at
2: this point, when we're getting so minute in the details of the actual disappearance, we have to say, like, fuck the speculation. Fuck the people that are going to be like, oh, you're speculating. No, this is the point where you, you develop scenarios and scenes and you try to figure out what the right thing, what the thing that happened, what makes the most sense.
3: Yes. And it's what I need you guys for is to do what you're doing to me right now because I know that it is it is that close of, uh, in the timing and I need somebody to, to slap me around here and there to just put me back in my spot because I know that that scene that night, there's something funky went down there. There's no doubt in my mind. What happened? I do not know. I don't know who is covering for who, but unless like you say, unless after Atwood left, and he called 911, and Faith had hung up. There's only three minutes where, if like you stated, Witness A was off on her time, and it was actually around 7.40 when she came around the corner and saw the vehicle nose-to-nose with it, no one would be more the wiser to not call 911, because Faith is already off the phone with 911, and the cop shows up. So Faith is just like, oh, the cops are here. Like, so like you said, maybe Faith took her eyes off the scene because, yeah. yeah. But it was the SUV. It wasn't, you know, ha- that would have had been the, the SUV, according to Witness A.
1: just want to move down the timeline a little bit here. And at 746, Officer Cecil Smith arrives on the scene and is driving Cruiser 002. And this is a sedan. And, uh, so nobody is at the car at this point by the time, supposedly, uh, by the time Cecil Smith got there, Maura or whoever is not there. And Smith goes to the Westman and Atwood residence to ask where she is. Um, and then we'll get into that, but I just also want to go to the, the last bubble here on your timeline is witness B. Susan Champy. She left work in Lincoln at 7.20 and arrived on the scene by the Old Weather Barn at 7.50, which is right after Cecil Smith arrived. And noticed squad car 002, the sedan, Cecil Smith's, the car he was driving, parked near the Saturn. And she says the passenger side door of the Saturn was open into the westbound lane. Now, everything we've known about this case, we've known that the car was locked from the outside and Mora took her keys with her. So how could a door in Mora's car be open unless they had the keys?
2: Or unless they jimmied it.
1: Good point.
3: When Susan Champy comes by at approximately 7.50, uh, you know, one or one minute plus or minus, she notices the car door of the Saturn open. The passenger side car door open. She notices a police officer and two passers by. Two pass two, I'm sorry, two bystanders. Excuse me. This is from the uh SOCO article. Uh, direct from that. That is a direct quote from her from the SOCO article. So another big question for me is this would have been before fire department and EMT showed up. If it was at 7:50, because they didn't show up till around 7:56 or 7:57. So, if that's true, who were? And Susan Champy has stated and talked to by the family that um, that there there was no fire department or ambulance there because there weren't no red lights she remembers that specifically so it was before 757 that she was there and she sees the two bystanders my big question is who were the two bystanders
2: two bystanders that were at the at the scene susan Champy says that she sees two people on on foot
3: yes yeah, standing there at the scene with the police officer so my question would be who are those two people uh, I have often thought that it was Tim and because of, you know, because of that a long time ago, I've asked him and he states to me that he never went outside that night, neither him nor his wife.
1: Did Susan give a description, male or female or one of each?
3: She couldn't identify. She was just driving by and she said there was, you know, it was winter. So there's two people in coach, you know, but just that they, she was driving by and there was two other bystanders there.
2: So I just wanted our listeners to know that we reached out to Susan Champy um to uh to have her clarify the 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 article and to see if she could recall anything. So that's one of the huge things that we could really um we could really find out some important information on who who she thought these uh two bystanders were. Cuz this is this is why we're we're left with this gray area because um Susan Champy if you're listening just Give us a call, shoot us an email, and uh, you don't have to come on the show. But just if you want to, just leave leave an email and, and tell us what what was there. We can um, we can put our energy and effort into something else, or into finding out those two bystanders.
1: This timeline that you have created, John, is so different from anything we've heard so far. This is nothing like what we've heard from the police. Like the police say one thing and some. Eyewitnesses say a completely other thing, so you have to ask yourself, well, why? Why are they so off?
3: I mean, and, and that's what we have to do. That's why we are picking this apart because, you know, if if all these witnesses came and said, "Oh yeah, I went by the car was, you know, there was nobody near the car, the car door was, you know, there wasn't no doors open, you know, I saw this cruiser," you know. We'd all be sitting here got right now going, Oh, so man, where did she disappear to? We wouldn't be having the rest of this conversation around the other minutes before and after. We wouldn't have to. But we have to because, you know, these people have come up with this information. And like I say, you know, I, I don't think they I don't think they have any reason to lie. Um Yeah, they could be off a few minutes here or there on their timeline. I I agree with that. Of course they could, you know. I mean, you might have driven a little slower than you usually do on the way, you know, or you might have driven, started driving slower once the cop passed you, you know, and it might have taken you a couple more minutes. But I still don't see it being enough time for it to be, you know, to be off that far. But again, like I say, I you know my my goal right now is to get another interview with witness a if I can get another interview with witness a which you know if I ask her one more time if it was an SUV or not I'm probably gonna get slapped in the face but you know maybe I won't even bring that up I'll just you know say look you know I've never heard your story could you just tell me from the beginning I'm not gonna tell you what I know could you just tell me from the beginning so I don't plant in her mind You know, anything that I want to hear, just what she's got to tell me and see if it matches with what we've been told. You know, and see if there are any inconsistencies with her story. And more than likely, there's not going to be, I mean, because it's not like it's a big convoluted, you know, story on her part. It's basically what, five minutes, six minutes out of her life, you know, that she remembers. Boink. So, It would be interesting to see, even after 12 years, if that was to change. That's my mission, is to talk to her again. Next time
2: on Missing Maura Murray.
3: The rag's still in the tailpipe, so it probably won't start with it in there. You might want to take that out. They instructed Fred to take the towel out of the exhaust.
0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, Drew Scott here, and
2: I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding
0: you that life's better with a
2: home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help
3: you save when you bundle home and auto.